Well, if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 11, our sermon text is the last little little passage in Mark 11. It's Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word to see this morning. Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. Give ear to the, the word of God. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his, his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark in particular as we study through it even on these, these Sundays. And we ask that you would give us understanding by your spirit, work in us, that we might uh, know your word rightly, that we might uh, believe, uh, help we believe, uh, help our unbelief, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, uh, last Sunday, we looked at verses 12 through 25, a much larger text than we have this morning. And there we saw uh, a couple things. We saw Jesus cursing the fig tree. And we saw him cleansing the temple. Remember, he was tossing tables over. He was throwing people out, people that were buying and selling things inside the the actual building of of the temple, the temple grounds. And what was he doing? You know, he was he was exercising his authority as king. You know, the previous passage to that was was the triumphal entry. And, you know, people were, uh, you know, singing Hosanna. They were quoting Old Testament messianic uh, prophecy about about Christ. They were saying, Hosanna in the highest, and the blessed is he who comes in the name of of, of uh, the kingdom of David, and all these things. And so he was the king, even though he was riding on a humble animal, not a war horse. Well, the next thing he does, he goes back to the temple, starts throwing tables and chairs around, throwing people out. A kind of a violent, you know, the whole the whole passage almost seems like Jesus is kind of out of control. He's not, but it almost strikes us sometimes that way. He's cursing trees, throwing tables around, kind of uh, throwing people out out of the temple itself. Um, It's as if he didn't want them to think that his humble entry on that donkey was to be mistaken as a lack of authority. That his humility meant that he was one without uh, power or that he was somehow weak or timid. He wasn't going to stand for his house being abused, being turned from a house of prayer into a den of of robbers, as he says, quoting Isaiah 56. Well, you know, what does Jesus say there? He says to them that they had turned the house of God, his house. That's really what he's claiming when he did. When he's turning those tables over and turning chairs over and throwing people out. Jesus isn't just saying it's one thing, you know, like we're here at church now. We don't own this building. Right. But if somebody does something out of, you know, that's very much out of line, you know, one of us might take take it upon ourselves 
to say, hey, that's not right. Don't do that here. Or maybe you should leave. God forbid, you know. Well, Jesus is doing more than that. By, by tossing these tables over and throwing people out, and he's basically claiming authority over the temple. That's a pretty big claim. But he, 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 he owned that claim as the Messiah, as the Son, son of God. And so he tells those, those chief priests and, and scribes and whatnot that they, they had made God's house, his house, into a den of robbers. And back in verse 18, Mark says this, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. In other words, Jesus wasn't whispering it to just a few people. He said it for their benefit as well as for the people. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. In other words, they heard what he said when he said, you've turned my house into a house of uh, a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. They knew he was talking about them. They knew that was directed. The people all heard it, but he knew that it was directed at them in, in particular. They were the ones who had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves or robbers. They had. They were the ones in charge. And so Jesus had directed that at them. It was their wickedness that he was exposing. It was their sin that he was rebuking in front of the people. Except rather than repenting when they were rebuked, what did they do? They doubled down. They sought even more to kill him. They sought, they sought to kill him. That's, that's the backdrop of our passage this morning. We have to kind of keep the context in mind as we go through these last six chapters of Mark's gospel. And the first thing we see in our passage this morning is a, a conflict of authority. That's really what's going on here. This is kind of two authority figures kind of butting heads and clashing Together Once again, for the third time in chapter 11, we, where do you see Jesus coming to? He goes to Jerusalem, and where does he go when he goes to Jerusalem? He goes to the temple. The temple's like the hub of all the activity here in the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And as he's walking around inside the temple, he's approached by a very specific group of people, isn't he? What, look at verse 27. Mark says, they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and, and the disciples, and as he was walking in the temple or walking around inside the temple, who comes up to him? The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, commentators point out that this particular group of people is a designation or a description of the membership of the Sanhedrin. That's kind of the Jewish Supreme Court or the Jewish High Court. They were the ones, so to speak, who were in charge in the temple. They were the ones who were in charge in Judaism. So, when you take that into account, Mark doesn't hit us over the head with it. He doesn't say, by the way, this is the Sanhedrin. But the fact that he specifies that that's who it was that was coming up to Jesus, um, it kind of makes the reason for their trip and the reason for their question stand out even more. They were the ones who were used to being in charge. They were the ones who were used to being in charge, again, not just in the temple itself, but also in Judaism as a whole. And now, when you're reading Mark's Gospel, when you, if you're reading on your own chapters 11 through 16, um, much of what follows chapter 11 and what comes after, what it does, it, it kind of demonstrates, as what, as what one commentator puts it this way, it demonstrates that hostility to Jesus came from all the influential groups within Judaism, and that, quote, the leaders of the Jewish people have rejected the will of God. It's not, it's not that the crowds rejected Jesus. In fact, 
our text kind of says the opposite, doesn't it? The, the, the chief priests and scribes and elders were kind of walking on eggshells. They were kind of mining their P's and Q's in public anyway when it came to Jesus because the people not only held that John the Baptist, like our text says, was a prophet, they believed Jesus. They were the ones just lining the street with their coats and palm branches. They, they were the ones that just a couple days before this were singing Hosanna and talking about the coming of the kingdom of David, the son of David. They're talking about the Messiah. There's no, there's no question who the people thought Jesus was. They weren't wrong. They knew Jesus in some way was, was the Christ, but the Jewish leadership, is a, it's a different story altogether. All now, I'm not going to preach next Sunday's text this Sunday, but there's a connection. If you look at the following passage, Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, it's often called the parable of the tenants. What this does is that that parable serves to illustrate this point, that the, the Jewish leadership, the Jewish religious leaders were the ones that officially rejected Jesus as, as the Messiah. There in that, that parable, Jesus talks about kind of a landowner, and he leases out his, his land, his farmland, to, to tenants, these tenant farmers. And what they were supposed to do was give back a portion of what they grew to the guy who owned it, to the landowner or the Lord. And so what, is, what does the landowner do in that parable? He starts sending his servants to go see if he can gather some of what was owed to him, some of the fruit. It's also a connection to the fig tree, not, not having fruit on it, right? This all kind of ties together. And he sends one servant after the other, and some they, they disrespect, some they beat, some they kill. And then at last, what does he do? He says, I'm paraphrasing, I know, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And what do they do to his son? It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the cross, isn't it? They take his son and kill him, and they say to themselves, let's, he's the heir, let's kill him, and we'll, ha we'll have it all for ourselves. What ends up happening? They kill the heir, and then the landowner comes and throws them out, doesn't he? It's a picture of, of judgment. Well, that's what's going on here in our text. And you know, it's not without reason. If you think about the people who first read and received the Gospel of Mark, you know, the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're, they're all telling essentially the same story. But Mark, Mark, it said, is the story or the account given from the perspective of the Apostle Peter. And they say that it was written, at least initially or primarily, to Christians living in Rome, to Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. What kind of questions would those believers, especially in the first century, have? You know, it's, it's, it's not something that's isolated to the book of Mark, the book of Romans. How many of you have read through Romans and gotten to chapters 9 through 11, where, where Paul talks about election and all kinds of things, and scratched your head or, or maybe rubbed your, your temples and thought, wow, I, this is some deep water I'm, I'm wading through here. I don't really understand it. But what's, what's the reason that Paul brings up election in the first place in Romans 9? What's the reason? What is he, what's his main point in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans? Chapter 9, he says, it's not as if the word of God has failed. In other words, what's he talking about? Israel's rejection of Christ. If you're a Gentile Christian and you're seeing the people of God who were supposed to be, by and large, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah for you know, 2,000 years or whatnot, and you see them reject him, that's going to throw you back a little bit. You've got to be thinking, wait, something's wrong. Certainly something went wrong. Has God's word failed? And so Romans 9, all about election, the purpose of it is to show that God's word has not failed, that God's word actually foresaw this very thing that God also chooses whom he's going to save. 
And not everyone of Israel is of Israel. Not everyone who's ethnically uh, Jewish was, was ordained and elected to believe. And then later on in chapter 11, he talks about has God, has God forsaken his people? You know, if you're, if you're coming to Christ for salvation, one of the things you're going to want to be sure of is that God's word is not going to fail you and that God isn't going to turn around and reject you. And why would you wonder that if you were living in the first century? You see the, the history of the Jewish people as a whole, not all individuals. The disciples were Jewish. The apostle Paul was Jewish. Many Jews believed. But by and large, they did not. To the point where the temple, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. It might make you say to yourself, wow, is that something I have to worry about? Is, is God going to turn around and go back on his promises? And so uh, one of the things you have to see in, in the book of Romans, as well as in the gospel of Mark, is I think Mark is very subtly making the case, here's what happened. And here's why it happened. It wasn't some unexpected thing. God's word did not fail all these quotes from the Old Testament show that this wasn't some unexpected thing. There's a reason he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah, you remember what God told Isaiah? Isaiah had that great vision of the glory of God in the, te- in the temple, right? In the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, uh, Isaiah sees the, the vision of God and says, you know, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, you know, the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm a dead man. You know, judgment's coming, and I'm, I'm the first one in line. I'm in big trouble. And what is, in the vision, a, a, one of the seraphim, the burning ones, the angel takes a coal from the, from the altar, the place of sacrifice, touches his lips and says, see, your sin is atoned for. And then God says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, you know, who am I going to send? You know, somebody has to go be my messenger. And what does Isaiah do? Isaiah says he goes from, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, to send me. Here am I, send me. And then what does God tell Isaiah? You're going to go. You know, thank, thanks for stepping forward. You're going to go, paraphrasing. They're not going to believe you. You're going to go and you're going to preach. How'd you like that to be your commission? Go, go preach and no one's going to listen. I'm sending you. You've got to say what I'm telling you to say, but they're not going to listen. Well, that's, that's a picture of what happens in Jesus' day. And so it's not some unforeseen, unimaginable thing as hard as it is for us sometimes to comprehend, um, it, was for, it was foretold in the Old Testament, and it came to pass in Jesus' day. So we're going to see in more detail next, next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, about that parable, that it really is a picture uh, of the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish religious leaders. It's, there, it's exactly the point of it there in the text. That's how, that's how they treated God's prophets as those servants in the parable. That's how they would treat the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 12 of, of, of Mark chapter 12, it says that the, those chief priests and scribes, it says they perceived that he had told the parable against them. In other words, they knew exactly what he was saying. It wasn't lost on them the point of what that parable meant. And who is it that Mark says perceived that he had talked about it against them he looks back to our text, the verse 27, the chief priests and scribes and elders. Don't let the chapter breaks in your Bible fool you or throw you off. This is the same day. It's the same time in the temple, verse, the verses we're looking at, and the first part of chapter, of chapter 12. The parable of the land, the, the, land uh, the tenants, came right on the heels of our passage right here and was connected to it. So the conflict of authority that we see throughout Mark's gospel is really a rejection of Christ and his authority by the Jewish religious leaders. 
the ones who thought that they had the authority. You know, we, we might be used to seeing that because of our familiarity with the Gospels. If you've read your Bible a lot, sometimes these things kind of lose their, uh, their force upon us, but it really should be shocking to us. If we had never read this before and didn't know what had happened, I think these kinds of verses would make us sit up straight in our chairs and, and scratch our heads. Well, the next thing we see is not just a conflict of authority, but a question, a question of authority. Look at what the, those chief priests and scribes and elders, uh, what do they do? They come to Jesus and they try to test him, don't they? They don't know who they're testing. It's never wise to test the Lord. And in verse 28, what do they say? They ask Jesus a question, and it's a trick question, isn't it? They say, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority, this authority to do this? What things were they talking about? What, why are they asking about authority? They're talking about him cleansing the temple. They're saying, you know, you came in here tossing tables and chairs around and throwing people out like you own the place. You know, what do we say in our day? Who died and made you boss? You know, who, made, who put you in charge? You know, well, Jesus, that's what they're asking him. So that, so that those are the things that they were talking about, flipping tables, throwing people out, the people that were buying and selling. You know, that, that's the action of someone claiming authority which is exactly what Jesus was doing. He, he essentially was saying, this is my house. You people get out of my house. You don't belong here. You're doing things you shouldn't do in my house. He was claiming authority over the temple itself, which we don't have an appreciation for what that would mean. Like We, we, don't, even, we don't know what the temple really looks like. We can't comprehend how important it would have been in the, in the lives of the Jewish people. It was the, the, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice, to have, have a man walk in, even at the head of a parade, as Jesus was on the, on the triumphal entry, and start claiming authority over the entire building and what goes on inside of its premises was certainly an act of claiming authority. Now, where did Jesus get this authority? Who gave him this authority? Why did they ask that? What's the implication of asking that? There's more than one. The first, I think, is that they didn't give him the authority. Who, who, who did they think was in charge? They thought they were in charge. You know, it's as if, it's hard to think of a, of a way of an analogy for it, but it's as if somebody would, would come into our church that we don't know, although they knew who Jesus was, and they come in and they want to start preaching and administering the sacraments. Our natural question would be, wait a minute, you know, who are you, for one? You know, but who ordained you? Where, where did, where's your ordination? Like, who, where, what church body ordained you to ministry? Uh, we don't know who you, you know, you, you would ask for proof of that. That wouldn't be a bad question. It wouldn't be a trick question, but it wouldn't be a bad question to ask someone uh, in that kind of a situation. But I think here they're saying, we didn't authorize this. It's as if they thought they owned the temple. They thought they were the ones really in charge, and they hadn't ordained or elected Jesus to any kind of office, and so they wanted to know who had. Where did you get this authority, Jesus? You know, we, we don't remember ordaining you and would have had to have come through us. They were challenging his right to authority in the temple. Now think about the arrogance and the hardness of heart involved in these questions. It's easy for us to not think of that. When you think about just who it was they were talking to, I mean, what he could have done in response if he wanted to. The Lord of glory, you know, the Son of God himself. And here they are questioning, denying. The question is really a denial of his authority. They weren't saying... We believe you might have authority. We just want to know where you got it from. They were rejecting his authority. And they were laying a trap for him and asking the questions, weren't they? 
They were trying to find him, find a way of getting him to say something with which they could use against him to get him in trouble. Remember, they wanted to seek, they were seeking to destroy him. We've already seen that twice in Mark's gospel. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus answered a question with another question, as he often tended to do. Look at verses 29 and verse 30. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He's making a deal, right? You, ask, you answer mine, I'll answer yours. Um, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So, you know, it sounds like a pretty easy thing to do, right? Uh, you answer mine and I'll answer yours. No problem. All you've got to do is answer one easy, simple question. And so what do they do? They huddle together. You know, the Sanhedrin, it's almost comical to think about it. The Sanhedrin gets together and has kind of an impromptu uh, court, uh, kind of a, a sidebar, if you will. They get together and they start discussing, okay, how should we answer? They can't just think about that. They can't just answer. They have to think about how this is going to be spun, how this might be used against them, because that's how they were asking the question, right? Takes one to know one. Uh, it says they, they discussed it, verses 31 to 33, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, or really it's if, if we say, the, the sentence, it's an elliptical sentence. It doesn't even finish. It's almost like they couldn't finish the sentence. They're like, but if we say from man, yeah. And Mark says, for they were, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think even in the way Jesus answered he shows that he's not even accepting that they don't know. He doesn't say, I don't know, right? He says, neither will, neither will I answer. I think he's implying he knew and wanted them to know that, that they could have answered and they didn't want to. They refused to answer his question. They were, they were kind of between a rock and a hard place, weren't they? Neither one of those answers that they could have given, was only, only two answers that he would accept, uh, would, would, would make them do anything but look bad or expose their sin. If they answered rightly the truth, if they answered that John's baptism was from heaven, they were right. What was Jesus going to say? If, if John's baptism was from heaven, why hadn't they believed John's message? But if they answered honestly that they didn't believe he was a prophet, what would happen? The crowd would turn on them. The crowd that was supposed to be following them would, would turn on them. Now, if you think about our own day, it's easy to think sometimes that these kinds of things have no application. I admit, preparing to preach on this very passage, I thought to myself, what, what application is there for us today? And there's, there's more application than might be obvious in the text. But this isn't just some problem, uh, some sin of centuries past. This isn't something that we don't have to think about ourselves. Think about, think about what you might know of liberal, unbelieving pastors and leaders in the churches today. Liberal, unbelieving pastors and seminary professors in some way, you could say are the spiritual descendants of these scribes and, and priests and, and elders. What do they do? They, they reject the word of God while professing to teach and believe it. Don't they? They reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject his law. They reject his commandments, teaching people that all kinds of wickedness and sin is really acceptable in God's sight. And God will not certainly judge. They, like the false prophets of old, to use the words of Jeremiah 6 and 8, 
says, what do they say? They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's what false prophets do. Sometimes the, the true prophets sent from God were what Elijah was called, uh, what the troubler of Israel. He always says bad things. Well, he always calls people to repent. That's what prophets, that's what prophets did. They called people to repent. Jesus' question, what it, what it really did was it, it kind of tore the mask off their unbelief. It exposed their unbelief for what it was. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes this in a, in a helpful way when he says this. If the priests, lawyers, and elders would answer his question, Jesus' question, he would in turn answer their question. In fact, as they all knew, here it is, the right answer to his question provided the right answer to their question. Jesus wasn't being evasive. He was letting them answer their own question. If they answered his question truthfully, they answered their own question as well. If they were to say that John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven, in other words, it was from God and he was a true prophet, even as the people knew, then they had their answer because what was John's message? Think about their question. Where did you get this authority, Jesus? Who, who gave you this authority? He doesn't ask about John the Baptist for some random reason. John the Baptist's entire job was preparing the way of the Lord. John the Baptist's job was to point the people to the, to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ himself, which, it was, which is what he did at Christ's baptism. He said, you know, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. This is him. The one that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals of his, of his you know, the straps of his sandals. Is, this is going to be him. And this is him. His whole ministry was, was to point people to repentance, but to point them to Jesus as the Messiah. Well, if Jesus is the Messiah, according to John's message, which he is and which he was, then they knew exactly where he got his authority from. The Messiah, and that's a word, Christ and Messiah, we throw these words around sometimes without defining them and thinking about them. Christ or, or Messiah means anointed one. And it's another way of saying the anointed king. Remember Samuel, when, when David was chosen as God's king, what did Samuel do? Samuel was the prophet. He anointed David as king. So Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah, it's, it's another way of saying he's the one that was to come. He was, the, he was God's king, the same king spoken of in, in, Psalm, in Psalm 2. So if they admit that John, that his baptism was from heaven, then they were admitting that they should have listened and that Jesus really was the Messiah, and as the Messiah and God's king, they don't have to ask where his authority came from, do they? came from God himself. And so Jesus was kind of trapping them into having to admit that if they were honest, that they had no excuse for rejecting him and his authority. Here we see Jesus is that really is the one greater than Solomon. You think of Solomon as this all-wise king that, you know, could, could uh, what's the, remember the story about the baby, the two, the two moms claiming the baby was, was theirs, and what does he say? Okay, I got an idea, let's cut the baby in half. Horrible thing to think of, but why did he do it? He knew the real mom would never let that happen. And so he ex exposed which one was the real mother and real, which one was not. Well, Jesus is, is the one greater than Solomon, as Jesus himself even said. And he, he, he doesn't, he's, not, he's not able to be trapped and tricked by simple, by simple and, and wicked men, but rather he turns their trap back on themselves. Now, if they say that John's baptism was from man, in other words, it wasn't from God, uh, what does it say? It's that the people all held that John really was a prophet. They'd have a problem. They'd have to expose themselves in front of all the people as rejecting the message of John 
and the identity of Christ. They were more afraid of the crowds turning on them and causing them to lose their positions of authority and importance and probably their, their, their way of living, their, their means, than they were about fearing God. It's, it's ironic. In a sense, who had the authority here when it came to the scribes and the, the chief priests and the elders? They thought they had the authority. They were wrong in that account. They rejected the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When push came to shove, though, in a sense, who did they bow to? Who's a, who really had the authority here? It was the crowds. It was the crowds that really had... It's, that's who they feared. And so that's who had the authority. And so what did they do? They answered in a cowardly way, dishonest way. They said they didn't know. And so Jesus said that he wouldn't answer their question either. Think about this. What a, what a horrible picture of hardness of heart and unbelief these men were. Of all the men in the history of the world, who should have been the first in line to believe in Jesus Christ and accept him as the Messiah? It should have been them. And yet here they were, the ones that, that, that really rejected him and were the ones that led to him being crucified. It's a frightening picture to think about. They should have been his most enthusiastic followers, and yet they were the ones that wanted him dead. Now, the last thing we want to look at is Christ's authority. Jesus Christ's authority. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king spoken of in Psalm 2, God's anointed king on his holy hill. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. In Matthew 28, 18, what does Jesus say about authority? He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. By whom? By God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. Ephesians 1, to 23, Paul says there that that God, quote, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God himself has put all things, not just things in the church, for the church, all things under Christ's feet. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone who rejects Christ's authority now will one day bow the knee to, to, to King Jesus. Everyone one day will be forced to confess and acknowledge the authority and kingship of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father the Christ. One of the things that we do as Christians is confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It was one of the earliest Christian confessions ever, ever said on the lips of God's people that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sometimes people said that and the cost was their lives because the Romans wanted you to say that Caesar is Lord and the earliest Christians would refuse to do so. There is one Lord and one King of Kings and Caesar is not him. Jesus Christ is Lord. And saying, calling him Lord, we acknowledge no higher authority than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lastly, Romans 10, 9 through 11, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise for your word. We thank you for these 
the accounts of in these gospels that you have given us in the scriptures that at times can be puzzling for us to, to try to understand, but uh, and also frightening for us. And we think of the hardness of heart of sin and unbelief in people that should believe of all people who should have believed these, these men should have believed, but did not and sought the death of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so we come to you and we, we acknowledge that the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, your anointed king over us and over all things. We thank you that he is ruling over all things for the sake of his church. Even now that he's ruling over heaven and earth from your right hand. And that one day, one day in the future, we know not when, but you, you alone do. One day he shall return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to call us home. We thank you for this. We thank you that no matter what happens in this world, whether it be a storm, whether it be a sickness, whatever, whatever it might be, that Jesus Christ is Lord over even that and nothing happens outside of his reign, outside of his authority and power, that he really does rule over all things for our sakes in such a way that all things must work together for our good, even for our salvation. And we give you praise that we worship such a king as this. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.